So we've made it. We're in 2021, believe it or not. It's a new year. And I'm thankful for each and every one of you here. I know I say that multiple times repeatedly, but I mean it. Um, I just want to start the new year off right. I know we hear these things about uh, New Year's resolutions and all that stuff. I get it. I understand. Um, but I keep preaching the same thing week in and week out. And that's what I'm going to continue to do. So it's nothing new there. We're going to be talking about Jesus Christ, him crucified, raising from the dead, and our hope that we have in him. And it's a really joyful thing. It's a joyous thing. It's a good thing that we have a king who does not leave us alone in the darkness, fearful and afraid, ashamed. Just going through this text over the course of the past week and chewing on it and eating it. What it says matters. The way Jesus speaks matters. And we have to start with that baseline. We have to start that he is who he says he is, that he is the King of kings, Lord of lords. It's very easy to look at what Jesus says and be like, well, I don't have to believe that. I don't have to trust that. I don't have to look at that. If we come to a worldview where morality is subjective and there is no absolute truth. What I mean by that is there is right, there is wrong, there is right, there is wrong. In modern thinking, 21st century, 2021, we think as long as it feels good for me, then it must be right. If it feels good and I'm not bothering anybody, what's the harm? That is a uniquely modern man thought, unique to Western ideology, and it wasn't in place when this was written. This is why we have to understand a little bit contextualization of the scripture. We cannot have our 21st century Western American mindset and be like, oh, I know exactly what this means, or I don't know exactly what this means. Because Jesus is going to say some hard things. He says, in order for you to live, you must die. Now we look at that and it's like, I'm an individual. I'm an American. What do you mean? Give up my rights. Rights are the only thing I have. We have to understand the context and who is speaking. The one who is speaking is not just a good teacher. It's not a motivational speaker that you go spend $100 for on a three-day packet and get a whole bunch of notes and write down. It's like, yeah, that's some good tips. This is going to help me. This man is making the claim of divinity, that he is God, King of kings, Lord of lords. So we have to frame it in that. Either you believe that or you don't, right? So we have to frame it like that. And this is our second week of the sermon series called The Hour, right? Last week we saw how the true followers of Jesus react. In contrast, we looked at Judas. And for a little setting, I want us to know that the religious elite were frustrated that Judas, uh, not Judas, sorry, Lazarus raised from the dead. 
And when Lazarus was raised from the dead, the Jewish elite, they looked at him and was like, we got to not only kill Jesus, we have to kill Lazarus. We can't have this. So that's the mindset of where we're at. Jesus does an amazing work and people look at it and say, nope, doesn't fit into my paradigm, doesn't fit in my worldview. He can't do that. I don't believe that. If he does what he says he does and he did what he said he does, I need to follow him. I'm not going to follow him. Let's kill everything and wrap this up. That is the context we are in. So before I get any further, I just want us to pray because I truly believe in prayer. I don't think that this is some fanciful thing. I think that we have access to the Holy Spirit to talk to God the Father. And that is an amazing thing that should blow our minds. So I'm going to pray that we would gather something today, that we would know Jesus better today. So Father, thank you for the men and women here. Thank you for 2021. Uh, Thank you that we are alive and awake and present here on the Lord's Day, starting out the first day of the week here, together. Father, people who are not here today, I pray that you would be with them. We are still in the middle of a pandemic, so I pray for health. Lord, I pray that they um, would not succumb to sickness. Father, be with the men and women in this room. I pray that as we look at how you came in and entered into Jerusalem, that we would learn from you and we would be transformed. I thank you for the fellowship and family that you are building here. Be with each one of us. And I pray that we would know that it's the little things that matter. Jesus, be with your people. Amen. So we're going to jump straight into this section. Uh, We are in John chapter 12, starting in verses 12. And this marks a shift to the ministry. I think it is important. That's why we have the hour. That's why the sermon series is called The Hour. Because the first chapters, the Gospel of John, was going over three years. Three years is a long time to go over in 12 chapters, and then he zooms in. To the end of the book, he's going to be in one week. That's important for us to know as we're studying. So John finds it very important to zoom in on the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry. Jesus is now coming to Jerusalem. He is coming to celebrate the last Passover. The last Passover with his disciples before going to the cross. And if you look in our bulletin, there are three points. The king praised, the king pursued, and the king's pronouncement. Jesus is claiming his kingship. So we're going to start in verse 12. The next day a large crowd that came to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took the branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. And just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's coat. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things had been written about him and had been done 
to him. The crowd had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead and continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him is they heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see, you're gaining nothing. Look, the world goes after him. It's a beautiful sight. We've probably heard about this story in the past. If you're from a Christian background, this is Palm Sunday. This is what we hear. And what a beautiful sight. But we have to understand, get into the mind of the Jewish people at this time. They are under Roman oppression. And they have heard stories going back generations, family stories. The history started with God calling a man out of the land of Ur named Abram. And God told him there would be many descendants coming from him. And that even kings would come from his family tree. That he would become a mighty nation. And that nation exploded under the oppression of Egypt. Where they worked as slaves under the oppression of Pharaoh. And God heard their cries for freedom. And he led them into the promised land. He led them into the promised land. And they would probably recall a story of a man named David. A king after God's own heart. Who God said there would be someone coming from his line. Who once and all would free the people of God. And even through their own disobedience and idolatry. An exile came. And the Jewish people were scattered all across the earth. Enslaved in foreign lands. There was a time of rebuilding, a time of hoping that a Messiah would come. The king of the Jews has not shown himself even in this time. They were without their redeemer. They were without their deliverer. Prophets, including Zechariah, talked about this time when a man would come and finally redeem his people Israel. They were looking towards this time. It might be hard for us to fathom or get a grasp on because we aren't waiting in eager expectation for a man to come through that door who would claim to be the king. But their day has finally come. People with rich history and a strong God, a God who would go before them, finally this day their king has arrived. Verse 13, it said, So they took palm branches, branches from palm trees, and went out to meet him. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Most of the crowd probably understood this king of Israel in a political or military sense. We can get that. We can understand patriotism. Hoping that Jesus would use his amazing powers and miracle workers, workings to destroy the Roman oppression. To destroy the Roman rule. To finally lead the nation of Israel to independence. Oh, what a glorious time that we can finally be free. They scream, Hosanna, Hosanna. This means, Lord, save us. Lord, save us. And this is what Jesus sets out to do. Lord, save us. But his act of salvation isn't going to be from military might. It will be from the death on the cross. This act of salvation isn't going to be crushing the Roman oppression, but defeating sin at its root. Notice how the king enters into the city. 
I love when we get to observe the text and just slow down. Verse 14 said, Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it. Just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. He does not come on a war horse. Our king does not come on a war horse. But he comes on a humble donkey. He isn't coming to engage in war with the Romans, but as a humble servant of God to wage war against sin. Romans are just the fruit of the corrupt world. They weren't the true enemy Jesus wanted to overcome. It was sin that he wanted to come to defeat. He wanted to hit the root, and that root is sin and the effects of the fall. That is the true battle. And Jesus is fulfilling the prophecy right before our very eyes. And I think it's important, here's another tidbit as we're reading scripture, as you guys um, are going through the Bible, when it talks about saying, it is written, right? I want you to just go and find out where it was written. Usually that's in the Old Testament, and we get to find out, and we get to get better context, right? We get to see better what Jesus is trying to accomplish. When John writes down, hey, it was written here in Zechariah about him on a a donkey, it's good for us to go to Zechariah and read that context that John is referring to. It's just a very practical way to deepen your Bible study. So that's what we're going to do. And this is where it says in Zechariah 9, it says, Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous, having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on the donkey. So this is talking about Jesus Christ at this moment. He said he has come to fulfill this. And he says, I will cut off the chariot of Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, of the blood of my covenant will be with you. I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. This is the section that John refers to. So what is Jesus trying to say by his actions, by fulfilling the word of God in this way. What can we learn from this simple action about our king and savior? I saw three things in this. There's three applications. That this coming king, he seeks peace, first and foremost. Second, is it's not limited to Jerusalem. He says it's to the ends of the earth. So this is a global vision. It's not just for the Jewish people. It is not for Israel only, but for the ends of the earth. And I love the last line of this. I will set prisoners free. He isn't seeking to overthrow the Romans by force. No, he wanted to graft them into the family of God through the church. It is not about Israel only, but the salvation of the whole world. And we see this being fulfilling in the way the religious elite respond to the crowds. What do they say at the last section that I read? Look, the whole world's going after him. This is a global vision that our king has. 
So we see that his kingdom is not one about conquering land per se, but setting prisoners free. He isn't looking to just gain ground. He is looking to save prisoners from the land. And the prisoners are enslaved to sin. This is the reality of what we're dealing with. You were either slaves to God or slaves to sin. This is the reality that we have. We either serve God or serve sin. This is the reality. That is how he's planning on setting these prisoners free. Through the cross. People saw Jesus' arrival as king to come to assume a throne. Sit up on the throne and overthrow all of the oppressors. They wave palm branches, and this is a symbol of national pride for Israel. You might wonder, why are they doing palm branches? Imagine if the president comes in and you see all them flags waving, right? Very similar thing. That's why the Jewish people were waving palm branches. This is a sign of national pride. This is the sign of Israel's king finally coming. They wanted a king to defend them. They wanted a king to fight their physical battles. But Jesus, more importantly, wanted to fight their spiritual battles. So while people saw Jesus' arrival to assume a throne, Jesus saw his arrival as a man coming to be executed. There's this juxtaposition here. And Jesus is not only the king of Israel, but he is the king of kings, the king of the whole world. And we get a glimpse of this through the next section, that he is the king not only of the Jewish people, but he is pursued by the Greeks. He is a king who the world pursues. Verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Verse 20, now among those who went to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who soon went to Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked them, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus' fame has caught the attention of some Greeks. And the Greeks were known for seeking out truth. Culturally, this is what they were known for doing. But why is it important to see the Greeks here? Why is John put the fact that these are Greek people here and then it just goes on and talks? It's a very interesting thing. But it made sense in the context of Zechariah 9, the fulfillment of the man coming on a donkey, saying that I shall seek peace of all nations and my kingdom shall go to the end of the earth. We have gotten a little bit lazy with our understanding of Christianity. This was a mind-blowing thing to have a God be the God over everything. This is not commonplace. There were 
deities who were over certain regions, but not one that went through ethnic lines, cultural lines, socioeconomic lines. This is unfathomable. Jesus is more than the Jewish Messiah. He is the king of kings, the king of the whole world. He's the king over all nations, over all neighborhoods. He's the king over this city. He's the king over Columbus. He's the king of all. And what does Jesus respond to Andrew and Philip? It says in verse 23, Jesus answered him, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He's saying to everybody, if you want to see me, wait till you see me and see my glory. Wait till you see me lifted up on the cross. Wait till you see what I come to accomplish. You think I'm coming for a throne of earthly pleasure? That is not what I come. Wait till you see my glory. I will draw all people unto myself then. Not just the Jewish people, but the entire world will see. The fascinating thing is Jesus says about the Greeks same time he prays to the Father. We see this in John uh, chapter 17 in the high priestly prayer. Over and over we hear about Jesus' glory, the glory of the Father. It says in John 17, 20, they will see my glory. He wants them, the whole world, to see Jesus for who he truly is. What he truly came to accomplish. Not just a teacher with some good tips, but a king of kings who's to rule and reign, defeating sin and defeating death. In a week's time, his father will crush the creator for our sins. The creation. The creation sins, the creator will be crushed. Then after three days, our father will rise him up from the dead and give Jesus a name that is above every name. A name that every knee shall bow. Every knee, including the Jews, the Greek, white, black, rich, poor, young, old, every knee will bow to Christ. And you may not believe that he is the king, but that doesn't change the fact that he is. That's why I talked about earlier the fact that there is absolute truth. It is not subjective. Subjectivity is a product of modern thought. If there is no absolute truth, there is no morality. That is the reality. We may sit down and have not my king t-shirts on, but that does not mean that Jesus is not the king. It does not change the fact that he is the king over all creations. And this is good news for the Christian. We have the privilege to be identified with him, a part of his family. Father is our father. If we trust in him, obey in him, if we listen to what he requires. But what does he require? What does he say? What does this king say when he comes in to assume what they think is a throne? Well, this is the king's pronouncement. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls in the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. 
Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me where I am. There my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. What a hard saying. Like Jesus says the stuff that you're like, wasn't expecting that at these moments. This is a hard saying. These men and women are calling out to Jesus, giving him a kingly welcome, expecting the king to come overthrow the Roman oppressions. He's about to speak. Imagine you can hear a pin drop, waiting for your king to say something, anything. What is he going to say? This miracle worker, this Messiah, what is his first rule and act as king? We must understand this is very important what he says. The people who are shouting, Hosanna, God, save us. What is this salvation and what would it cost? Church, please hear me. There will always be another Rome. There will always be another oppressor. This is short-sighted thinking that Jesus wants to come and eradicate. He isn't trying to topple the fruit but get down to the root of the issue. That sin and the fall has created a rift between God and man, and we are meant to dwell with God, and it was the purpose for which we were created. We were created to walk with God, enjoying Him. But in our rebellion and our hatred, we just say, I don't want that. I want autonomy. I want to have my own life. I want to say, this is the way I want to do it. And for whatever reason, God himself comes in flesh, says, I love you so much, I'm going to come and die for you, and goes to a cross to pay for the sins of his creation? Read history. Read the Greeks. Read the Romans. Read ancient Near East deities. They come to steal, kill, and destroy, and want everything from you. Everything from you. Even look in modern thinking, this rat race of eating and trying to gain and get this and get prestige, it's the same thing marketed differently. That's all it is. Pay attention to history. They're just new gods seeking to be worshipped. But in our scientific brain, we look and we think like, well, that's not deity, that's my choice. It's still deception. And Jesus was not trying to topple the fruit, but get to the root of the problem. He is not coming to assume a throne in the way that they think. He is not coming to destroy the Romans in the way that they think. But he is disarming the flesh and the demonic rulers and authorities. And he puts them to open shame by triumphing over them by the cross. He accomplishes this Hosanna. Lord, save us by dying like wheat. Being buried in the ground. Giving birth to much fruit. If the grain of wheat does not die, no fruit will come. 
If the grain of wheat does not die, no fruit will come. If Jesus does not die, no one will be saved. Remember, it's not the Romans that he wants to overthrow. It is sin and flesh. The corruption that has plagued the world since the fall. Sin has to be punished. And it will be punished through Christ at the cross if you trust in him. Or you will pay for your own sins. There's going to be payment one way or the other. Either by Jesus or by yourself. That's it. Once again. That's it. So Jesus uses this illustration of wheat to make a point. If the grain of wheat dies, fruit will result. The death of Jesus will be for the salvation of the world. And not just the world, right? This is what he's talking about when he talks about the world. That not just the Jewish people, but the people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Only through his death there will be fruit. John 16 As he is coming closer to accomplish this mission, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is good for you that I go. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. I can't in good conscience talk about what the requirements of Jesus Christ are without talking about the fact that he sends his spirit to be with us. Because if he left us alone and hearing what he requires of us, how could we do it? The fruit will be produced from Jesus' death is not only from his restoration and relationship with God. That's one thing that happens. But also we will be given his spirit to continue his work till he comes back. This is what we are tasked with. The Holy Spirit, the third party part of the Trinity. This is a part of God's plan. And what does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit comforts, the Holy Spirit teaches, the Holy Spirit speaks, the Holy Spirit makes decision, the Holy Spirit grieves over sin, the Spirit will search the deep things of God. He knows the thoughts of God. The Spirit even interprets human prayer before the throne of the Father. The Spirit assures believers of their adoption. The Spirit bears witness and glorifies Christ. Jesus says that he must die to bear much fruit, like a wheat in the ground. And he turns to his followers and requires this of them. He says, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. He says, follow me, die with me, hate your life in this world with me, serve me. This is what the king says. Follow me, die with me, hate your life in this world with me, and serve me. We cannot do this apart from the spirit of God dwelling within us. We cannot. Like, what do you do with this section? What do we do as, like I said, 21st century Americans who love independence and think freedom is the best thing? What do we do when Christ says, follow me, die with me, hate your life, serve me? Can we follow Christ and disregard what he says? 
Are we allowed to do that? Can we follow Christ without listening to what Christ has said? Can we do that? Are we still Christians? We're not followers of Christ if we're not following Christ. This is the cost of being a Christian. You follow your king. And it's not just about going to church. It's not just about giving tithes or being generous. It's about following Christ and observing what he says, what he's commanded us. And this is a hard saying. And there's no getting around this. But I'm thankful that we have a Savior who has gone before us. Oh, what a glorious thing that it is that we have a Savior who's not telling us something that he has not experienced himself. He has lived his life for the glory of God and gave up his life for the purchase of his church. He did it first. And not only does he go before us, but he sends his spirit to be with us and to comfort us and to strengthen us. And we don't have to be alone. It's a good thing that I leave because I will be sending you the advocate, the comforter. Have you ever seen a leader who's unwilling to do the dirty part of the job? The lowest job, the easy job. He just wants to do that. It's easy to lose respect for that person. They're not willing to do the hard stuff. Why should I? The opposite is true of Christ. That's the reality. When in reality, we're unwilling to do the hard part of being obedient to God, Christ steps in and does that job perfectly. We cannot say to Jesus, you do not get it, you do not understand, you do not know how hard this is. So to the ones who say they believe that Christ is the King of Kings, that he is your Lord and Savior, this isn't a picking and choosing kingdom. This is not an a la carte kingdom. You can't just go down the laundry list and pick and say, yeah, I want the ham and cheese, I want an orange juice, I want this, that's what I'm going to order, and that's what Christianity is. You either follow Christ or you don't. That is the reality. And that's what he says. Follow me, die with me, hate your life in this world with me, and serve me. To love this life means to delight in your own life in this world more than God. That's the reality. That's as simple as I can put it. Putting creation over creator. You want to boil it down? Loving your life is putting creation over creator. You guys can enjoy coffee. Get that. This isn't a morose, horrible, difficult, challenging thing. You can enjoy friends. You can enjoy a good book. You can enjoy a movie. You can have fun. You can do things. You don't have to go and live in a monastery and be a monk to be a Christian. But what you can't do is put creation over the creator. It will wear you down. It will tear you apart. We saw two examples of this 
in the previous weeks. People who love their life more than they love God. One with the religious elite. They wanted to keep their power prominence in place. They wanted to hold on to their systems. They wanted to be the head honcho, the one in charge. And because they loved their life so much, they wanted to put Lazarus and Jesus to death to save their own skin. When we love our life more than God, we will do horrendous things. We can and think we're just trying to maintain order. The end justify the means. I can do whatever as long as I keep this up. As long as I can keep this, it will be fine. It will be good. It will be okay. No who else loved their life is Judas. He loved it so much that he would steal to keep himself wealthy. He loved his own life so much that he sold out a savior for 30 pieces of silver and sent him to death. His friend. But Jesus... Jesus loved the Father so much that he was willing to give up his life for the sake of the church and the glory of the Father. To love this world is to hold on to the old corrupt systems. To distill your purpose in life to acquire either powers or pleasantries. And there's always just going to be a next step. That's the heartbreaking thing about it. And it might always be good, right? It can be good in the sense that, like, man, if I just do this. Like, <clears throat> sidebar, I'm going to get an example, right? I enjoy comics. I love comics, right? And I can get a next one and a next one and a next one. And then, like, so you have trade paperbacks, you have floppies. I know none of this matters to any of you. I understand that. But what I'm saying is you get these and you finish a story and the story's beautiful. Ah, you sit there with 12 comics, it's done, you wrap them up, that's amazing. But guess what? You want more and it keeps going. And now I'm not saying that it's sinful to love comics. I still enjoy comics. But the thing is, there will always be the next story out there. And that goes with life in general, that we can get so consumed with the next thing that we miss this life entirely. And Jesus wants to free you from that. He is the King of kings, Lord of lords. He is God put on flesh, came in to show you how to properly live. We keep running around on this rat race where, like, man, you look at philosophy over the course of our lives, and we just sit down and we read this, and, like, what does it mean to be human? All these deep questions that we have. And Jesus is saying, I'm letting you know. Focus on me. Love me. Trust me. Enjoy your coffee. Have fun and be free. Glorify me, honor me, put me above creation. Stop doing idolatry. And we complex it. We make it so challenging, but we feel that weight. Don't we? We feel that weight of trying to do the next thing. And it might not even be bad. I'm not saying that it's inherently evil, but when we start putting things over him, it messes up how we were designed and created to live. This king is letting us in on the true meaning and the true purpose of life, where the true purposes lie. And they are not in the corrupt world, in the corrupt systems, or in the flesh, but in trusting the living God. Jesus comes into a city with palm branches and shouts of praise. His people are calling to him for salvation. Even the non-Jews are there calling to him, saying, I want to see you. 
And his first act is king. Is I'm going to come and bear fruit. How I'm going to come and bear fruit is I'm going to die. And for me to be king means you must follow me. And if you follow me, that means that you are going to die to this world. It all seems foolish to the outsiders. You can look at that and be like, what is going on? Power is found in servanthood. Life is found in death. This makes no sense. But the way to true life is found in only Jesus. Trusting in what he says, following him, and denying the worldly structures. He has created this world. This is where I was talking about absolute truths and foundations. We have to start here. In the beginning, God. God created. God spoke out into existence. This is the foundational absolute truth that we have to have for our worldview. That he has created the world, that he knows how it should properly work and how it should properly function. And if this king says to follow me, that means to die to self. Let's not kid ourselves and act like we're Christ followers without following Christ. Our king marched into Jerusalem, the crowd screaming, Hosanna, come and save us, please. Please save us. The Greeks say, we wish to see Jesus. How does Jesus want to be seen? Have we asked that question? How does Jesus want to be seen? How does the king talk about his nature of his kingdom? It's not through power and might, but it's through the death on the cross for our sins. How did they understand him as king? Through his death. How will those around us see Jesus? We're portable temples. I say it almost every week. The Spirit of God has dwelled in us, given us freedom, allowing us to be portable temples. So how will the world around us see Jesus? Only if we die to ourselves and are alive in Christ, through the power of the Spirit living inside of us. May our lives be one that makes much of our Savior. And may God lead us to a life of sacrifice and a life that bears much fruit. The hard part about dying to self is it's comfortable to stay the same. These structures are familiar, but they lead to death. Jesus knows the path to life. He says, trust me, follow me, walk with me. I will show you life. Father, you are the King of kings, Lord of lords. You are the God of all creation. I thank you for the men and women in this room. I pray that we would actually be followers of you, that we would have actual freedom in you, that we would trust in you and have hope in you, that we would look at you and say, God, you are glorious and good. You are my king, you are my God, you are my redeemer, you are my fellowship. Father, teach all of us how to trust in you. I think about, in the beginning, you said it's not good for man to be alone. You gave him Eve. And then in Acts, it's not good for the church to be alone. And you gave us your spirit. Father, let us not forget that we have access to you, that we can pray to you. 
I thank you for each one of these people, each one of these men and women, my friends, my family. Be with us. Give us wisdom. Teach us how to be better parents, better friends, better co-workers, better spouses. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.